Hello everyone, and welcome to the Severe MMA Roundup. Each and every month, the Roundup will give you clips and snippets from the Severe MMA Patreon podcasts. This month, we have an offering from Shawnee Podcast's famous Q&A, we have some Speaker's Corner, we have one of the 10 years of Severe MMA podcasts with Graham McDonnell, and we have a snippet from The Contender covering Michael Venom Page. Let's get into it. Firstly, we have the legend Graham McDonnell talking to Joe McColgan as part of his 10 years of Severe MMA. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the 10-year anniversary of Severe MMA podcast series that I've been doing. My uh, my latest guest is Joe, the SBG Hunter McCoggan. If we can even go back a little bit, how did you first get into mixed martial arts? Like, what was your what made you interested in the first place, and and how did you start training? I I was I think I was a student, and I don't know. It was just kind of my brother started like doing this martial arts training, and I always thought martial arts training was you know like standing in a gi. Like, you know, buying to your sensei and, you know. Stephen's a guy like. like. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was never interested in that as a kid. I was never interested in any kind of combat, like boxing, thought in the way, that's for thugs. I thought, you know, it's just like karate or anything like that. It was just stupid. Um, so when, I, think, man, I was like, I was intrigued. I was like, why are you going and doing this? And he explained what it was. And his friend also worked in a place that I worked in while I was studying Sainsbury's. And, um, he was telling me like stories about I remember him telling me this one story this is before I've ever trained he was telling me about this massive guy this massive wrestler um, was beating the shit out of this guy and the wee smaller guy like got him in like some lock and submitted him and I thought that was really cool it actually was that was the Brock Lesnar versus Frank Mir fight when Frank uh, Brock Lesnar was destroying Frank Mir and then Frank Mir submitted him with a leg lock that was the first time someone had ever told me about cage fighting and my brother was telling me he was going to do this. And I was like, do you know what? Ah, I'll just go up and give it a shout. I'll give it a try. It sounds like, you know, see what it's like. So I went up with my mate uh, and my brother. And it was just really, everyone was really, really friendly. Uh, and it was really enjoyable. Like we were allowed to grapple at the end. I didn't have a clue what we were doing. But I just I just thought, I, I was just, my, my main takeaway was that, Jesus, everyone here is really nice. Even the guys who look to be getting all the respect, they seem to be the top guys in the class. They're all taking their time like they're all like giving you a bit of time and i just thought that would i was quite unique because you know if you join like a new football club or whatever it's all very clicky you're kind of standing there not knowing what to do or who to talk to but so this was very different and i thought i'm going to go back here and i kept going back and <clears throat> i started i was getting good at the grappling i was able to submit people that have been training there for longer than me and i don't know it was just kind of one it was like a snowball effect and just kind of one thing led to another and then I think after like a year of training once or twice a week, my coach said to me, he's like, listen, there's a fight here in two weeks' time. Uh, I got to put your name in for it. It's like, you don't really have a choice. You're going to do this. And I, I thought, I'm never going to fight. And now all of a sudden, I'm going to be fighting here in two weeks' time. And it was actually on uh, a clam war show in Armagh. Um, and yes, yeah, so that was my first fight. And uh, Warren, it was probably Warren one of- Mitchell, was it? Yeah. Yeah, Warren that, Mitchell. Um, that was one month after the Brock Lesnar Carwin fight, so it was pretty. It was a pretty quick 
turnaround between between seeing that fight and getting in there and fighting yourself. No, no, the the, the fight that I was told about was Frank Mir versus. Oh, Brock Frank Lesnar. Mir. Oh, okay, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So that was what a, a year before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it, I think it was the same. We fought on this. It was on a Sunday, and the night before, Anderson Silva fought. Uh, Anderson Silva fought Chael Sonnen. The first time, so that's it? yeah, yes, yeah. yes, where that uh, Anderson Silva hit him with the triangle. So yeah. that that's how long ago it was, and that was my first fight. It was probably one of the worst experiences of my life. In that the two weeks that led up to that fight, couldn't sleep. Uh, I didn't have a clue what I was doing with my diet, but I just knew I had to lose weight. So I wasn't eating. Like, I literally wasn't eating anything. All I was having was, like, vegetables and chicken, like, which is, looking back now, is completely stupid. We didn't have... That like, was the norm. We, that was the norm. That was what people were yeah. doing. Like, I remember before of uh, one of Connor's fights uh, against Max Holloway in Boston, he was just eating chicken fillings with almond butter on it, and that was it. You know, yeah. this is preparing for a UFC fight against Max Holloway. That was how little kind of was known. And there was no nutritionists involved. There was like barely no. any strength and conditioning. Even nobody had any money. Nobody had any sponsors. People barely had gloves and stuff back then. I think yeah. people, you know, people look at the, the sport now. And if you're an amateur getting in the first time, you probably have a couple of sponsors on your shorts and your gear has been paid for. And you have like a a nutrition sponsor or a nutritionist working with you and all, but it was completely different back then. People didn't have a clue what they were doing, as you mentioned, and weight cutting was even more dangerous back then than it is now. Yeah, like, it, we, we we really were, you know, we were blind behind the wheel, um, and, and, like, not even from, a, like, a nutrition point of view, like, for weight cuts or performance or, or even, like, a conditioning point of view, but I'm talking skill-wise as well. If you compare what... The, the kind of coaching that we have now, and I'm, I'm going to I'm going to reference Fight Academy Ireland at the moment too, as you guys nominated the best team in Ireland, and rightly so. Um, you know, if I look at the coaching that we have now versus the coaching that I had when I first started, like it, it's like comparing apples and oranges. It's it's just it's vastly different. Next for the roundup, we have some of the best questions from Shawnee Podcasts Q and A. John Sheehan answers everything on SevereMMA.com. Welcome, welcome, everybody. We're back with another edition of the Q&A with me, Sean Sheehan here. Right, the first question here is from uh, our good friend, Evan Keevney. Uh, who's your standout performer for the Ironman Nationals? Uh, that, that's a good question. It was Look, I talked about it a little bit on the, on the main podcast, and obviously, lads, I'll be talking about it a lot more on the Old Triangle as well. Um, but I, I, you know, and I won't go into like I think the slight issues with him. It's it's tough to see the best performers um, because of the format, I think, and because of uh, the the shorter rounds. Even Paul Redmond talked it in the interview he did with Andy and was kind of talking about the the three three minute rounds and um, you know how how that is kind of tough or or you know fighting three times in three days. Possibly some people only had to fight once, but some people had to fight two or three times. So that can be tough as well and adjusts the way you're fighting because you can't be going on having stand up wars three days in a row. So that is definitely fair enough. But um, I like the format. I like I like doing it like that. Parts of the format I would like to change, especially the the lengths of the rounds. Uh, but the stand up performers for me, if you look at you know the uh, some of the semi I watch a lot of most of the semi-finals and I caught up at some of the finals I'm still catching up on as we go I thought Cameron Clements was one of the guys who really stood out for me but not in kind of a flashy way you could sometimes you just see someone and they have you know just a, a little bit about them in terms of 
Um, it's just everything. You know, you, you see the basics. You see them throwing straight shots, you know, loopy, messing shots. Everything they do, they do with a purpose. I, I love fighters like that. And I definitely think Cameron Clements is one, uh, is, is a fighter like that who is, is a guy who really, really stood out to me. I thought Andrew Barrett, his interview with Andy was absolutely fantastic. He uh, he stood out as well and won three tough fights. The two Abbott Bissets obviously are going to stand out for everyone. I like Colin Maher as well. You know, obviously I'm naming all the winners here, but he his second fight, or his uh, fight on in the semi-final that I watched, I was very, very impressed with it. Um, you know, I'm always impressed with Solomon Simon, and he went down and he lost to uh, to um, Andrew... God, what's his second name? I just said it there a minute ago. Andrew Barrett um, in, the, in the final. So that's a massive win for Andrew Barrett there. So great, great stuff, and I'm sure the lads will break it down even more in the old triangle I, th- I think they have an episode coming out this week so yeah it was it was good great for uh, the people the, the amateurs to go out there and get experience and that's exactly what you'd want from this sort of competition so absolutely uh, they got what they wanted I, I would like as I said I would like a few adjustments to it maybe you know maybe I'm wrong maybe people would, would disagree with me but uh you know that's what the sport is for. But all in all, I think uh, definitely a positive experience for all the people involved, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it uh, to it happening again. Uh, next one: What fight are you most looking forward to at Bellator Dublin? Now, uh, Peter Queeley's fight has just fallen off. It's funny I I recorded my uh, my preview for Bellator just like a few hours beforehand, uh, but we got news this morning. We reported it. Now Bellator have confirmed as well. Or you know Monday morning, um, so that's obviously a big thing as well. It's interesting that they have moved to a five-five main card now. Uh, the Mega Med Sharapov card has been fight has been moved up, and also the Kieran Clark fight, which I think is probably uh, the right decision. I'd love to see Danny McCormick at the headline and spot. Now, actually, let me just—I'll check my emails as I'm as I'm talking here. But uh, I'm sure Bellator said that in the email. Although you know, now with Bellator cards, you you can never fucking tell if they're going to be right or if they're going to be wrong up until the day they happen. So uh, let, let me just pull it up here quickly. Uh, it, it, no, it's going to be Brett Johns versus Kurdishov, um Karakov, which doesn't make much sense, to be honest. That's a good fight, and obviously, uh, the standout fight, I suppose, uh, on, on the undercard in terms of high-level quality in, in the Bellator's divisions, seeing as Danny's division isn't there. But yeah, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't be the, the biggest fan of putting that one at the top of the prelims, but anyway, that's what they're doing. The one I'm kind of... Look, the, the fight I'm most looking forward to at Bellator Dublin is obviously Leah versus Sinead. Um... Maybe not even in terms of the the fight itself as as an athletic endeavor, but the, what it means behind it and everything like that. And look, I'm looking forward to seeing whose ability will win. Will it be the, the jiu-jitsu and, and judo and wrestling of Leah, or will it be the striking of Shane? That's always a fun matchup to see. But the the historic nature of it, you know, we uh, we have moved to a place in Irish MMA. A lot of the time, we always love to look backwards, and we, look, we should. And we should talk about the history of the Irish MMA and everything as well, but. We we sometimes forget to to look at where we've come from, uh, or where we've come to even. And myself and Harry have a bit of a podcast, the Speaker's Corner, talking about that on Thursday. And I think this fight is a great kind of indicator of that. Uh, and for I think this is not the week to look back. You know, this is the week to look forward. Like I, you know, I spoke about it this week a few times and saying like, you know, there's no mention of Conor McGregor really this week, or there shouldn't be mention of. You know the 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 fighters from before. I think this is a week. I kind of think for fighters of now. You know, and I I really I really do believe that. And you know, sometimes we're too, especially in Irish MMA, where we're too 
kind of cognizant of looking back and all of that. And, you know, we I think we've done a fantastic job of appreciating the past fighters. And, you know, most of them, you know, are still doing it or still involved in, with coaching and things like that. But we also need to appreciate the, the, the current fighters we have, I think. And this, Liam McCord versus Sinead Kavanaugh is definitely a fight uh, we need to uh, we need to appreciate. And I'm that's definitely the one I'm looking forward to. Um, I'm looking forward to the main event the more the week goes or the more the, the kind of the card approaches, I suppose, it's only Monday so the week hasn't gone too far. But um, I, I do my preview. It's kind of... Sometimes we get too appreciative of, of fights. You know, sometimes we... <laughs> we overlook fights and sometimes we're like oh well you know we have great fights here who cares about that one and just because there's no Irish person it doesn't mean we shouldn't appreciate it and for a tile fight to be in Irish shores we've probably begged for them for years and years and years I remember when the UFC roundabout came we were like oh could you put a Demetrius on it or could you put a Ioanni and Jacek on it back in the day and we never managed to get one but Bellator are doing that and they're bringing tile fights and I remember I did a podcast not too long ago and I kind of said that's what Bellator need to do here because there's such a great audience in Ireland and that's what they're doing now so all credit massive credit to Bellator for doing that and uh, I'm really looking forward to that uh, to, that, to that fight so uh, yeah can't wait for that uh, next question from Christopher what grade would you give a Eagle FC 44 um, that's a good question I think we actually have more questions about Eagle FC later from um, from our good guy Severe and May Groupie um, he actually asked me on, on DMs but he said he asked it here so I look for that and if not I will touch on it later remind me everyone um, but Eagle FC 44 what grade would I give it um I'd, pro- I'd probably give it a B minus, you know, a B, a B, uh, or in Ireland here maybe a B two, a B three. It was pretty, it was pretty good. Like you know, it was the commentary was, you know, if I was to rate each thing, you know, the commentary I would say was a C C plus. Uh, the fights I'd say were were maybe an A, a you know, an A A two or something like that. Um, there was very good matchmaking in, in the fights and, you know, the, the matchmaking itself, I would give an A1. I think it was fantastic from top to bottom. Uh, the the app and all of that was very good. You'd have to give that a B plus or an A even. Uh, some of the production and stuff was was good, but not great. So that would probably be in the season. Be, you know, there was there was nothing, there was no, I would say there was no F, any big failure like that, apart from maybe Ali Abdelaziz sitting cage side and a few more things, but... Yeah, I thought the f- the fights were good. You know, I'll have a video coming out on it if it's not already out uh, over on uh, over on Shardong. And myself and Graham have talked about it on the podcast. But what you want from a promotion, you want people you know, you want good matchmaking, you want good fights, you want good commentary. Maybe, okay, maybe didn't have the good commentary, but it's okay commentary. Uh, so you, ca- you can't complain. You know, I wouldn't complain too much about it. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't too bad at all for me. Uh, next question here in 19 this is an interesting one I haven't looked this up but I'm just going to assume Christopher Graham tells uh, tells the truth here in 1926 boxing legend Jack Dempsey earned $770,000 for a heavyweight boxing match against Gene Tunney 94 years later Francis Ngannou earned 600000 for a heavyweight MMA fight in the biggest promotion in the world Dempsey's purse has not been adjusted for inflation thoughts um <laughs> my well, my thoughts on that are as Jack Dempsey was fucking paid well, wasn't he? <laughs> wasn't he? Jeez, in fairness, you can say what you want about Francis not being paid well, but Jack Dempsey was paid a hell of a lot of money for that, yeah. Um Look, this Francis, uh, I, I don't want to overblow it and over talk about the whole Francis situation because I feel like I've done it a few times. I actually have another video coming out on that because I promised it over in Charlotte, but look, 
Should Francis be paid more than 600,000? Yes, absolutely. Should anyone in that sort of headlining spot be paid that amount of money if you're on top of a pay-per-view? And I don't know about pay-per-view points and all of that in case people come roaring and no no one else does either. It's uh, it's a thing that's different for a lot of people and the amount of money you get is is different for a lot of people as well. You know, the deals before, there's one out there, uh, if you look it up, if you Google, it's Rampage Jackson. Do you know what? Let me pause this for a second. I'll go and, and look it up and uh, and see if I can find it. And then I'll read you what he got, okay? I'll be back. Right, I found it. I, I don't think it's necessarily Rampage Jackson's, but I, I leave the, the link in the description. This is from Bleacher Report all the way back in 2013. And I, this is the last time... Uh, I uh, I remember even hearing or seeing one of them. It was Jonathan Snowden who did it. So I'll read out, and this is a quote from the Bleacher Report article. And I think it's from EOC. Uh, I haven't had a chance to go through it now, so feel free to go through it again. But I'll read you out here. For com- a quote, for combined pay-per-view provider buys purchased within 30 days of the live event, fighter shall receive... And this is me talking here now for a second. This is from, allegedly, from a UFC contract. Okay, so I'll go back to it. Fighter shall receive $1 for each pay-per-view buy between 200,000 and 400,000 buys and $2 for each pay-per-view buy between 400,000 and 600,000 buys and $2.50 for each pay-per-view buy over 600,000 buys. Unquote. Right? So... One dollar between two hundred thousand. If it sells four hundred thousand dollars, they will get paid two hundred thousand uh, dollars in uh, in pay per view bonus. So that will be their pay per view bonus. So we're talking about millions. Okay, if they pay, if it costs six hundred thousand, they'll get that two hundred thousand plus another four hundred thousand for the two dollar uh, amount. So that's four hundred thousand for that. Now we're getting a bit iffy here, but so what is it? Uh, if it sells a million? So that's four hundred. By two fifty, so would that be eight? That'd be one million, if I'm not mistaken. So that'd be one point four million. That a pay per view. Uh, let's say if it's Francis. Let's say if this was Francis Ngano, his deal, and it sold one million, he would earn one point four million on top of his six hundred thousand. Now, did it sell a million? I think Dave Meltzer reported it sells somewhere like five hundred thousand. Let's say it did sell five hundred thousand, so he would get what the two hundred thousand for between uh, two hundred thousand and four hundred thousand, and then he would get another hundred thousand, but in two dollars, so that would be four hundred thousand. So he'd earn a million from that fight. So that's what he would get there. Now I've gone. I spent about ten minutes looking for that. I've forgotten what the question is, but let me let me just scroll down to the rest of that article see if there's anything else uh, kind of applicable here, but. Uh, and it also says, by way of, of example only, if such an applicable event were to generate 900,000, uh, fighter receive 1.3 million. Yeah, that's kind of what I was uh, what I was saying. 1.35 million, sorry. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll link that in the description. Anyway, we can have a, a kind of a better look at it. But, um, yeah, so <laughs> I'll circle back to the question. My thoughts are uh, fighters are being underpaid. Jack, Sim- Jack Dempsey was very well paid, but... Yeah, very good. Are you nervous when you hear Ariel and others advocating for open scoring? Their basic argument is that fighters should be able to stall uh, <laughs> uh, if they know they're winning. Yeah, not really worried because I don't think, you know, I, th- I think the people, look, if you're a judge or an official, um, in, especially in those, commi- you know, part of the commission as well, you're used to hearing uneducated BS. Now, okay, when the, the the most famous journalist in the world is spouting it, it's a little bit different. But an education can come from anywhere, and and, and you know, in any place, it comes from the, the very top of the sport. And Dana White, 
the people they just haven't thought about it they haven't had the time to put in the thing and haven't gone and gone and spoken uh, at length to judges and thought about why it'd be such a terrible terrible idea it and no the argument will be okay we don't they don't know the score it'll be better for the fighters to know the score better for the fighters being the the most pertinent thing there well is it going to be better for the fighters when judges walk away from the sport when judges don't do, don't do it when judges uh refuse to sign up and say well i'm not doing that why would i take that amount of abuse it's already a tankless job you want to make it even more tankless well, do you know what you're going to get then bigger fucking idiots doing it and people who have no business judging fights judging fights and then you know what you'll have then you'll have fucking bad judging then you will have bad judging and this shite as well about every other sport uh, knowing the score and all of that. Every other sport knows how scoring works. If you kick the ball into the net in a soccer match, it's 1-0. How do you win around round in MMA? It's a very different story. If everyone was to learn that, absolutely, let's have open scoring. If everyone knew it, when they don't, it's absolutely not. Like, if you, if you think about it, right... If, okay, we have VAR and we can have all of those things and, you know, we, we can argue about them grand. But if the match, if there's a goal scored, if it's another goal scored, it's 2-0 and another crowd scored, it's 2-1. There's no one in the crowd roaring, I can't believe it's not 2-1. It's not, that's the incorrect score, it's the incorrect score. Outside of a VAR thing, right? Okay, let, let's leave VAR aside for a second. There's no one roaring down the sands. If it was 2-1 going into the fourth round of a title fight, do you think there would be that? With open scoring, if the people in the stands could hear it, do you think there would be people roaring and abusing the judges? How the fuck? How the fuck? And do you know what the judge is supposed to be doing in the fifth, or fifth or fourth round or whatever it is there when uh, when we've we've given out the score? Do you know what they're supposed to be? Doing? They're supposed to be concentrating on the fight and scoring it properly. And you want them concentrating on the fight, laid on in the rounds with a whole crowd fucking abusing them, saying that was a stupid wrong score. Do you know what that leads to? That leads to bad scoring. Open scoring. If you've thought about it for two seconds, you know it's bad for fighters. You know it will just be a disaster. So, yeah, there you go. That's my thought on open scoring. Uh, is the UFC men's 135 division the best at MMA and present? Some great and exciting fighters from top to bottom. It's definitely up there. Um, I think the one issue with that has been kind of the hold up of the division for times as well. Um, and some of the older fighters kind of hanging around and beating some of the younger fighters like uh you know Cruz getting a win uh over what who was a Munoz or whoever he got it over and Aldo beating everyone you know but that's good as well you Sandhagen in there you've Dillashaw in there you've Yannon and Sterling obviously at the very top and then Font and uh you know Marnaveras having a great upturn in his career Marais and Munoz you know doing good stuff as well Frank Edgar I don't know how he is ranked but anyway and then O'Malley and, and the others uh, after that as well so yeah, it's a fantastic division. It's hard to look past 155, but uh, and you know, and 145 as well. Like if you look at 145, Bryce Mitchell's ranked number 11, like, and he's undefeated and doing brilliantly. Edson Barboza is there as well. I I always have a soft spot for 145, but um, you know, there's those from 135. Even 125 is is great, underestimated. Uh, but those are all great divisions from there up to 155. I mean, 170 is is very good as well. Middleweight trash. I uh, also got a massive payday last night. He show his win, 30% of Peterson show money, and 100k to cap it off. Unreal. I'm not, like, I'm not the biggest fan of the guy who missed weight not getting the uh, the bonus, or at least a percentage of the bonus. I know it's unfair, and it's definitely an advantage and everything, but they're all missed, already missing 30%. Like, I feel like they should do it, right? 
let's say they get 20% of their um, of their purse taken and given to the other person. If they do get a fight of the night bonus, I feel like it should be flipped the other way around. They get 20% of the fight of the night bonus and 80% goes to the other person. That's, that's how I think it should be. So, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrrong, but there you go. Uh, that being said, should missing weight disqualify from bonuses? Yeah, that's what we're just talking about there. Uh, Chris Murphy, if you could, uh, if you took the top fifteen from one eighty-five, except for Izzy and Bobby, and applied their skills to say the one twenty-five or one forty-five division, sorry, one thirty-five, one forty-five division, do you think any of them would be in the one, uh, the top fifteen? Okay, right. Let's do that. Let's have a look at that. So the question is, if you look at, uh, down from, uh, uh number two, which is Marvin Vittori, down. Would any of those people be ranked if you took their skill sets and put them in 145 or 135? Uh, Marvin Vittori, a boxer like that, uh, at 135, like uh, Alex Casera, Shane Burgos, Ivolev, like Ivolev is ranked number 13. <laughs> I think Ivolev would destroy someone like Marvin Vittori with that skill set. Um, you know, Burgos, Caceres, maybe, maybe. Uh, so maybe he would be in there. Cannoneer? I don't think so. Uh, Brunson? Brunson, maybe he's become better now over the last while, even though he's fighting this weekend because Paul Acosta, absolutely not. He wouldn't be near any of them. Jack Romanson, without a shadow of a doubt, no. Uh, Strickland, maybe, because although you have to be more well-rounded, I think. Uh, <laughs> Darren Hill, absolutely not. Uriah Hall? No, he'd just stand there and, you know, get boxed up or taken down. Gaslam at his best would be, I would think, it's a pretty good skill set. But no, his skill set kind of only works for that division as well, doesn't it? Uh, Imavov, maybe. Tavares, maybe as well. Look, Tavares is an Aston Sow type, maybe. Munez, Munez is pretty good. Holland, no. Weidman, you know, Weidman was a champion at one stage, so maybe. Thomas asked about this. Eagle FC, first off, Habib is my all-time favorite fighter for a devout Muslim. I find him very tolerant to other beliefs. I respect his personal beliefs, even though the mask slips from time to time. And anyone's, uh, and anyone's for that matter. Uh, but that said, his lame excuse on not having WMMA fighters is not being condoned by the MMA J or website I, I, I've seen. Um... It's a fucking haram, plain and simple, which was mentioned by them a few months ago. That's in quotes marks there from uh, from Thomas. This is not political, it's discriminatory. Fuckers based out of Florida, the world's biggest MMA star was a woman not so long ago. Hashtag fuck Eagle FC views. Oh God, this is a different question for me to ask or to answer, I suppose, but... Look, if you're to look at it from a... And I look at it from this way first, and then I, I will get back to the, maybe the actual question. Uh, Cage Warriors doesn't really have that many women's fights, or any, does it at the moment? It hasn't had some in a while, anyway. You know, we give out about Cage Warriors all the time and go, oh, where's your women's MMA fights? You know, not really. So, like, the problem with, uh, heavyweight MMA as well, and women's MMA in some certain divisions, you know, you asked about Adam Wade earlier, so there isn't that many people, man, that many fighters around, especially if other organizations have a lot of women to put them into that like 125 pound women Bellator don't have the 125 pound sorry 115 pound women's division uh, and someone say like a Danny McCormack Danny Mack return of the Danny Mack is <laughs> is unable to fight in that division so it has to look for the OC or to go somewhere else so if they were look if Habib was to just come out and say that I don't I think most people would go oh, okay fine look if he says I'm not having uh, 125 on men's division either you know, like Bellator haven't either and Blaine are just glad to go you, no one's going to complain about that if they come out and I, I hadn't even heard this until Thomas brought it up and I'm glad he did but 
it it feels like sometimes Habib is looking for it, you know, and looking to disparage women and women's MMA. And he said things in the past as well, like he doesn't like women's MMA and everything like that. And, you know, I, okay, I respect his beliefs and I respect his, you know, his religion and all of that. But what's that got to do with this? As Thomas said there, he lives in America and all of that. Look, if he doesn't want certain divisions in his MMA organization, no problem. But him hating women's MMA and thinking women shouldn't fight in MMA, well, he can go fuck himself for that. You know, I think that's a lot of bullshit. Uh, if he's allowed to do it, why should any other human being be allowed to do it if they can, you know, perform and they can pass their medical tests or whatever else it might be? So, yeah, that's my thoughts. And I don't know if that's the question answered, but there you go. I've been bad at answering questions today. Hopefully that's all right, Thomas, and hopefully, uh, hopefully I didn't screw it up too much. If you have any more questions on it, feel free. Or if there's any, you know, any tough questions you want to ask me, I don't mind, you know, I don't mind being tested a little bit, Tom. Uh, who's on your MMA around Mushmore for each of the UFC divisions? Oh, good gracious. Okay, I better pull up the rankings. I'll just do it offhand, right? So, 125. So, how many do you have to give? Four. So, obviously, Demetrius. Um, Ian McCall. Henry Cejudo. Uh, Davidson Figueredo. Brandon Moreno's up there as well. Like, there hasn't that many champions. But I like like Ian McCall. People shouldn't forget him, I don't think. I think he should be in there as well. So, look, people can disagree. Let me know your four. I'll, I'll just throw the first ones that comes out to me. So, 135. Uh, obviously, Dominic Cruz, number one. Um, Uriah Faber, I suppose you would put him up there, but he was like 145, 135 as well. Was Mikey Brown 135 or 145? He was, he was one... I can't remember back in the, the WEC days. They're so long ago. Were those fights at 135, 145? I don't know. Um, who else? TJ and Hinnenbrough. There you go. 145. This should be pretty easy. Jose. Um, Jose Aldo. Uh, Max Holloway, Conor McGregor, and Volkanovski. That's pretty easy, I think, there for those ones. Lightweight, uh, you'd have to have... Um, God almighty, who would you have to have a lightweight? The lightweight's the toughest one. BJ, anyway, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, Vincent Henderson. Habib. And... There isn't an, there isn't an obvious other standout there, is there? Probably, you know, maybe Frankie. But not really. The fact that Frankie kind of moved away and didn't stay a lightweight. The same for McGregor. He was on the air for a couple of fights. Eddie only was there a couple of fights. But Eddie's been around a long time as well. Maybe, maybe you know, maybe Eddie. Maybe Eddie. Or, or Charles. You know, maybe he's done enough. Uh, Welterweight. Matt Hughes, GSP, Cameron Usman. And who would be the other one? Robbie Lawler. Yeah, that one. Pretty you know, Carlos Newton. Shout out to him as well. Shout out to maybe Pat Miletic even, but no, I go with those four. Middleweight. Middleweight, right? There was a big debate over this. This is Anderson Silva and Anderson Silva alone. Nobody else at middleweight deserves to be on the Mount Rushmore. It's only him. It's only Izzy isn't even close. Don't don't even joke about that. So uh, yeah. I was Tyron Woodley as well at 145, 170, sorry. He he should be up there. Um so what am I at now? 185, 205, Chuck, Tito, Randy, um, John. Pretty pretty easy there. I wouldn't put Carmi on it, no. Uh, there might be someone... Is there someone I'm missing there? There might be, but no. A Shogun, maybe? Shogun, uh, But no, I'd go, I'd go with those four, yeah. And at heavyweight... Uh, Stipe, Fedor... Uh, Kane... JDS, maybe? Francis? Verdum? I don't know. 
Anyway, the ladies. It's tough with the ladies. Let's give them a round rush war of just four ladies all together. Because it's tougher to do it for those divisions. I'm going to go with Rhonda, Amanda, Chris, and Valentina. How about that? What about that? Oh, that's a fucking solid Mount Rushmore for women's MMA. Beautiful. There you go. I could do a division. Well, there's no... Look, 135, you could go Holly, Rhonda, Amanda, and maybe Juliana. 125, it's just Valentina, let's be honest. 115, you know, I could put uh, Joanna Champion, Rose... Uh, Whaley and uh, Andraj maybe is there anyone else there Carla so yeah that, that'd be that uh, Kill Arson they're there both too next up we have some clips from The Contender with Ian O'Neill and the man himself Mr. Shawnee Podcasts discussing Bellator title challenger Michael Venom Page <laughs> Welcome to the Severe MMA Podcast Premium with Sean Sheehan and Ian O'Neill. What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of The Contenders. And we're going to talk about uh, a legend himself. Honestly, one of the favorite guys I've ever interviewed, Michael Venom Page. We're going to talk about him as a contender for that Bellator title, where he is in his career at the moment, and uh, where he, he might be going very, very soon in Hartings find effort it's an absolutely fabulous day for it international man of mystery you don't know where you're going to find me in the world Ireland one minute Canada the next over on the speaker's corner and keeping everybody guessing um it's good to be here it's good to be on the contender again and I'm looking forward to talking about MVP I think a very exciting fighter a very charismatic guy um you know and I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of breaking down the ins and outs ahead of his title fight indeed uh, I, I want to talk about the early days of his career in a second, but let's just jump forward first because I was actually thinking a little bit uh, about uh, this the while back when we first kind of mentioned MVP, and a lot of the time when we talk about um, the con- the contenders on this, especially if like MVP is twenty one fights now, right? So we're not talking about maybe you know a fighter who has had seven or eight fights. Let's say if we did a contender Ian Gary or something like that, or someone who's you know new into the UFC maybe or something like that. MVP. And we can talk about the matchmaking in a second. But he's had 21 fights. First thing I want to put to you is, where do you see the progression in MVP's game from the early days to where he is right now? Do you think he's changed much? Do you think he's progressed as a fighter? Or or what's your take on it? You know, I think in certain terms that he has progressed as a fighter. But I do believe that the matchmaking and the fights that he has been put in has made him not progress as much as probably he could have. Like... With MVP, he had, you know, the the common team and the common narrative that surrounded him was he was the can crusher. He was fighting these unknown guys and stuff like that. And it was only when we got a glimpse of him, maybe, you know, he fought Cyborg Santos and absolutely demolished him. But Santos was on, on the... Uh, on the cusp of retirement or at the end of his career. The first time we really got to see him tested uh, was against Douglas Lima that first time. And, you know he got caught with that big leg kick and with the punch and that was it. And what we seen after that was a progression in Michael Venom page. And I think it was a good progression, but 
then again, they put him in with strange fighters again after that fighters that we didn't know he went and fought boxing and, and then we saw him against Richard Kiley and a few other guys like that. But I think in order to progress as a fighter, you really need to be in there with top level opponents all the time. And sometimes you need to kind of taste defeat against those top level opponents. And I don't think Michael Venom Page has had the chance up until now to really kind of progress as much as he would because you know you'll we'll say it time and time again you learn so much more from your losses rather than your wins and to go back to that first Douglas Lima fight when he did lost he realized he had to change some things and he did and he progressed a little bit more as a fighter then and he's progressed into the fighter that we're going to see coming in against Amosov yeah that, that's actually an interesting answer because uh, and you've made me kind of maybe even change my thinking on it there, there definitely has been bits of, of progression even when we've seen him on the ground you know I think his jiu-jitsu isn't bad and his, his wrestling, his takedown defense obviously is, is very good and his work takedown defense into his style, which is very much a style that can be blended for a good takedown defense because of the way he fights. Um, but I just feel like MVP, uh, a lot, lots of fighters, let's say you look at someone like a Wonderboy, he completely, I think, adjusted his game to fight from where he was early in his uh, MMA career when he lost to Matt Brown and all of that. He became, I think, a completely different fighter, a fighter who could fight in different aspects of the game and do different things. Whereas I feel like MVP, the progression he's made is, right, he'll either fight the way he's always fought or he'll fight safe. And I, that is progression in a certain way because it's a progression in tactics. But is it an actual progression in your game itself? You're talking about a well-rounded mixed martial artist. It is, it is in a way. Don't get me wrong. I think tactics are massively important. And I talk about it every day, every day and every week. So if I was to say no, I'd be contradicting myself. But it's not a progression in terms of like, you know, getting really good at jiu-jitsu or adding something different to your game. Like Wonderboy, when he came into the DOC, obviously he was a very good kicker and all that. But then he became a very good boxer and he could pressure you more and he could attack more than just countering and things. I feel like MVP hasn't really added much in terms of that, in, in terms of changing everything around. Now, you could argue he didn't need it because he's so good. And I, I probably would argue that. But your point is great in terms of like he hasn't been tested, so he hasn't needed to answer and when he was tested against Douglas Lima he failed that test massively I just to go back to what I was saying is that when I like to try and talk about fighters I like there's three main aspects and they kind of all intertwine with one another and that's basic raw skills fight IQ and, and, and experience, fight experience, and they all intertwine together. And I think that we haven't seen too much development in the basic raw skills of MVP. We've seen we've seen a bit more development in the fight IQ and obviously the experience, which kind of go hand in hand with one another. And I think, you know, is that MVP's fault? Not necessarily. He has to fight the guys that are put in front of them. But what it could ultimately lead to in the end is a big, massive downfall for him. Because if he does go in there and, and you know, he's either not impressive against the likes of Daly or not impressive in the likes of Lima in those wins, or he's getting knocked out against Lima. Or if he goes into this next fight with Amosov and, and gets absolutely destroyed as well, people are just going to be on his case. So he's at a stage right now, unfortunately, in his career where... It, you know, it may be too late for him as well. He's 34 years of age. His time is not on his side. And, you know, it's it might be... I wonder if he just looks back and... And I, I'm kind of doing this now maybe in a little bit in advance. If he looks back at his career and think of what if... And I don't know whether that's, I should be pointing the finger at MVP or pointing the finger at Bellator for what they've done to him. It's a good question as well. And 
you know, obviously we'll talk about the Amosov fight later on. Like, uh, But let's say he wins that fight and he becomes a champion or he becomes a champion further down the line. I think he'll probably still look back at it in a little bit of regret, like thinking maybe I could have been a, ta- a champion two or three years ago, could have had some massive fights, made even more money. Like MVP, I'm sure, has made very, very good money out of Bellator. I saw Benson Henderson talking the other day uh, on the MMA Hour about the amount of money he won and probably not our... Um, earned and uh, that one earned uh, and he didn't deserve it because of the way he performed and that's a very honest thing to say and finally we have a snippet from a podcast that myself and sean run called the speaker's corner Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Speaker's Corner. And this episode is an extremely, extremely special one. Not only am I joined, as always, by the greatest Irish MMA media member of all time, Mr. Sean Sheehan. Sean, how's it going? I'm good. With that correct, correct (laughs) sentence you just said there. No close second. Hashtag no close second. I'm very well. Happy New Year. We then have... The future GOAT of Irish MMA, Mr. Ian O'Neill joining us. Ian, how's it going, sir? It's going absolutely fantastic, Harry. Thanks for having me on today. I'm delighted to be uh, a guest on the Speaker's Corner for the first time. So today we're talking about divisions. So I'll, as always, I'll set the scene and then, and then I'll chuck it over to you guys for your opinions. So over the last little while regardless of promotion, but specifically the UFC is is probably the most notable. Divisions have been a bit stale, whether that's heavyweight, whether that's featherweight, whether that's, you know, flyweight, bantamweight, whatever it is. One of the points that Sean has made, uh, sort of the underbelly of Sean's point, is that it feels to me that a lot of these divisions are being matched now, not based on a meritocracy. We speak, and I think the three of us, one of the things that we used to love about MMA is that you could watch a guy come in from maybe the Ultimate Fighter when it was good, and they could rise their way up the ranks. They could come from unranked to ranked, to top 10, to top five, to title shot, to maybe champion, right? And then we would see if they lose that fight, you actually see guys in the division fighting up and down in the division. That seems to be way less prevalent now And it's way more important that you have the social media following and the outward media presence. And that's what garners you a title shot. Obviously, there's skills involved. Do you think, Ian, that that's one of the reasons why we see stale divisions? Or do you think that that helps the sport? I think it is one of the reasons that we see stale divisions in in regards that, like you said, guys aren't getting title shots too much anymore based off merit you know when you have guys who are racking up eight nine fight win streaks and they're not even in the top five in the division at times you know when they're doing that and Mm -hmm. you know strangely enough when you you would think that when you're starting to bring in rankings and starting to clean up that side of things that it would actually help the divisions but I think on the other foot that it's probably hindered a lot of the divisions in the UFC with the rankings and maybe the way that fighters are being ranked or who's it's done by a voting system and 
it's not done off merits. And I, I just don't think that that has been a good thing so far. And and just to piggyback off Sean's fight, or Sean's points as well about the matchmaking since Joe Silva has left really has not been good, to be honest. There's been a couple of baffling decisions made. You know, we're seeing fighters getting title shots after losses and stuff like that. And I mean, it just kind of takes the value away from the ranking system and it also takes the value away from the title as well. And I think I, I think UFC is maybe leaning towards more the entertainment side of things and who fans want to see no matter where they are, no matter how many fights they've won. And it then kind of takes a little bit of the integrity away from the sport as a whole. I agree. And I'm going to throw it back to Sean to sort of piggyback off that point is you mentioned in your, in your point, Sean, that one thing that you would have imagined would have helped the matchmaking is the, the, the way busier schedules. You've got way more options to book fighters. Do you think though, that that's proved to be a hindrance for Mick Maynard and, and Sean Shelby, because they need to put fights on. Yeah. And if guys aren't ready, you know, in the in the preview that we that we recorded uh, a little while ago for for Calvin Cater versus Giga Jakadze, Ian Dean made a f- Ian Dean. He definitely didn't make a point, but Jesus, he'd be great to get on the podcast. Uh, Brad Wharton made a fantastic point about how actually this just does sometimes come down to logistics. If your man can't be there on a certain time or a COVID test or a venue or this or that, and the next thing UFC just have to do something. Do you think that actually more cards? has proved uh, detrimental to the divisions. Yeah, I do. I really do. Like uh, and it's it's a it's a great point like it's it, it's a great it's a great point that you have to fill these cards and they seem to be doing it by, you know, the fly their pants or whatever that that phrase is, flying by the seat of their pants, is that it? But if yep. there was more planning, if he's like, you know, Dana White has that wall up in in his office, we all see it and it's like this is the upcoming card. I feel like there needs to be another maybe two or three employees in there. Like, you know, maybe two matchmakers isn't enough. Maybe maybe you need two matchmakers, but you also need a planner and you need more meetings and you need more, you know, long-term planning rather than just short-term putting in these uh, cards when they need to be. But also another thing I think you need is, look, you need less cards. I think it'll help in, in that way. But I think... W- the, the point we're kind of talking about here now is with more more cards and how you fix it. I think if you matchmake in a certain way, right, you can fill cards, which are big cards, that if one of those fights does fall out, you don't have to scratch and look for a next one to go through. Whereas mm-hmm. you can also... You, there's, there's so many fights that can be made right now that if you were planning long term and if you had those big cards planned for the... Uh, big fights planned for the big cards you'd have an ability right you let's say you've the welterweight title fight coming up at ufc 300 right for ufc fight night the week before that for ufc fight night the week before that why not have sean brady on that card why not have Bilal muhammad on the card before that headlining and plan it that way like it and it doesn't have to be maybe as obtuse or as obvious as that but that's the thing that you know you could do and it, those cards are have more meaning because of that look at the card in, uh, last weekend now it will be because of the whole featherweight title uh scenario with holloway falling out the the fight between chikadze uh and cater became more relevant people cared about it more because the title uh news was in the news you know the title picture was in the news whereas 
now it feels like, you know, people getting title shots are like Premier League managers. You know, fucking Big Sam gets fired from West Brom, he gets into Norwich next week, he gets fired from West Ham, he gets into Everton. It's It, it feels like there's no one new coming in. It's all the same lads around and around and around again. And it's... It, I, I don't know. I think there's a serious, serious problem there. Maybe it's something we actually should have pointed out last week uh, in in the other one where we talked about the the uh, you know the uh, how to keep the sport well and how to keep the sport good. That is, that is definitely something we need. And it's look it, an easy solution to it, I suppose, is have less cards because it takes less planning. But having better planning, I think, is something we can do with with more cards. Um, and like that's that's. There are, it's one of those problems, like we've lots of problems in MMA and there aren't very hard solutions to it, but I feel like this one is, there can be solutions just with a little bit of extra thinking. 100%. I agree. And I think, I think to, to both of your points, to round those off and, and give some of my thoughts, I think that you're right that actually scarcity in life often is a good thing. And that, ladies and gentlemen, was your edition of the roundup thanks very much for listening if you'd like to support the podcast and you'd like to gain access to the patreon only podcasts head on over to severimma.com forward slash pints and sign on up there are thousands of podcasts in the back catalog for you to consume and this patreon allows for the severimma team to continue doing what it's doing covering irish mma and global mma in the right way thanks very much And we'll see you next time on the Severe MMA Roundup.